0: Writing and recording music, writing books and plays, Vietnam, conspiracy theories, aliens, UFOs. We'll talk about it all on this episode of the Mind Dog TV Podcast. And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here as always. Uh, this is the week of really interesting and multi dimensional people. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Tonight uh, is built sort of as another episode of Meet the Author, but my guest is much more than an author. He's got, uh, uh, he authors uh, plays. Books that are both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, I believe he he's a musician as well. And uh, if you follow me at all, you know I have a keen interest in uh, Vietnam. He's written about Vietnam. He's a veteran of a a, a former uh, military jailhouse guard and helicopter pilot. Uh, so a really interesting person we're going to get to talk to him in just a minute and wherever this goes tonight I'm sure it will be interesting and informative uh, but as I mentioned this is a week of very multidimensional and very interesting people tonight's show is brought to you by audiobooks audiobooks now uh, you can guess what they sell right you can guess what they sell right Audiobooks? Yes, that's right. You guessed right. Uh, And you know you can get audiobooks just about anywhere on the web. So why AudiobooksNow.com? Well, the answer is very simple. Price point, price point, price point. I always need to say that three times. Price point, price point, price point. Uh, audiobooks now club pricing plan is simply the best deal on audiobooks you'll find. It offers the savings and flexibility not found anywhere else with their save on everything discounts, rollovers, exclusive offers, loyalty program, incredible selection, and cancel anytime policy. It simply cannot be beat. Uh, get a free premium audiobook on select titles if you join today. Plus, you'll start a free 30 day trial of the club pricing plan, normally $4.99 a month. Uh, it's absolutely free to try for thirty days. If you're not happy at any time, you simply cancel and you won't be billed a penny. The link is in the description, and I certainly appreciate you patronizing uh audiobooksnow.com. Now, a relatively new uh sponsor we have on the program. It's always a little bit difficult for me to kind of explain the value of Cardcast.com. CardCast.com, um founded in two thousand nine, Cardcash.com provides an answer to two Common questions. What can I do with all these gift cards I will never use? And how can I easily save money? Well, card cash pays uh, cash for unwanted gift cards and then sells those cards at a discount. Make money, save money. It's just that simple. And basically, if you're like me, or if you know somebody like me who's hard to buy for, uh, come on holiday time or birthday time or whatever gift giving time, and you really can't figure out what to get them. And it's really, or you're just a little lazy, you settle for a gift card and somebody like me unless it's specifically for guitar center or sam ash or some place where i can get some music and arts maybe some place where i can get something that i'm going to use chances are i'm not going to use that gift card so for uh, somebody like me i will have a stack of gift cards that i've accumulated over the past several years uh, i can turn those into cash great deal and also if you want to save money on a particular item you want to buy you can sell those uh, uh, you can get cash for your gift cards or uh, buy gift cards at a discount. I should say, and use those gift cards to buy the items. So save money. So make money, save money. It's just that simple. Cardcash.com. The uh link is in the description. I appreciate you patronizing all our sponsors as always. Now I have to say we have a new Patreon page for people who are just sick of hearing the ads at the beginning of the show, or don't want to waste two minutes of your time every time you tune into a broadcast. Patreon is a membership uh system for the this broadcast and uh at the one dollar the basic level one dollar a month just one dollar a month you can get all the content absolutely ad free all the shows that is ad free every episode ad free and uh special bonuses uh, such as uh special music releases and video releases and things like that all at the one dollar a month level it's worth it just not to hear me talk too much isn't it i still have card cash up on the on the screen and that's that's just terrible uh let's talk quickly about um my guest tonight and and introduce him bruce olav solheim is currently a distinguished professor of history at citrus college in glendora california he has also served as a fulbright professor in 2003 at the university of tromso i'm thinking in northern uh norway he teaches a paranormal personal history course at citrus college dr solheim is an associate member of the parapsychological association and member of zero and mufon ladies and gentlemen please open your ears and open your minds and help me welcome in bruce dr bruce olive solheim (laughs) excuse me doctor i i you know (laughs) right The mouth doesn't work sometimes. The brain works, <laughs> but the mouth doesn't. I have to say, for, for my Republican friends out there, just because it's it's not a safe time to just call yourself a, a doctor without explaining that it's a PhD. You're the kind of doctor yeah. that Dr. Biden is. Uh, Joe Biden is not the kind of doctor who's going to give me a shot for COVID.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. Although my my veteran uh, friends call me Doctor B, but that's just a, a, an affectionate term, you know. But I. Yeah, I'm just Bruce, really. I'm just Bruce. I I always tell my students, uh, you know, that uh, you you can call me whatever you want because I get paid the same no matter what. So. Okay, yeah, <laughs> great stuff. Well, I'll,
0: I'll call you Bruce then, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so Bruce, as I mentioned, you're a multi-dimensional person, and uh, <laughs> what struck me is I, I've gotten a lot of people from Creative Edge, great authors, and I'm mm-hmm. always interested to talk about authorship, uh, but. Generally, it it's to serve a purpose of a dual purpose of to promote the authors work, but also to enlighten and inspire uh, aspiring authors, p- people who are just getting into it. But with you, I don't even want to start there because uh, <laughs> writing books is probably just another thing you do for you uh, from, from judging from what I can see. You've read a very rich life. So uh, tell me a little bit about all your experience and who, who you are and, and what really turns you on. <laughs>
1: Well, oh, boy. Uh, opening it up there. Uh, let's see. I, I do enjoy writing. Uh, I've, I've been writing since I was a little kid. And I remember my parents, who were immigrants, came to America in, in 1948. Uh, from uh, They lived under Nazi occupation in World War II. My dad was in a slave labor camp Uh, as I grew up with those stories. I I grew up with my dad's storytelling. He was a fisherman and a carpenter. My mom was a a homemaker and an artist. So I had, you know, very interesting uh, parents. And uh, from an early age, they knew there was something about me, my imagination or whatever. So they got me a typewriter. It was an old typewriter, an old royal typewriter. And I remember at age eight and nine, I was pecking away on that typewriter, writing stories and my dad would have me write letters, you know, in English, because he, he couldn't really write in English. He could speak English and read it, but he couldn't really write it. So I'd write letters for him, and so I I just started doing that from an early age, and I I enjoyed it, and uh, really that's behind everything else. All these other experiences, even when I was in the army, once they can find out. Well, in the, in you know in the 70s and 80s when I was in the army, if they can find out, you can type. They always put you, especially as an enlisted man. They put you in a clerical position, you know. So at the prison, yeah, I would work in the in the jailhouse, in the cells and segregation units. But as soon as I found out I could type, then I was put up front and you know the blotter clerk. So uh, you know that that's that, that's what uh, that's what I did. And in in the army uh, it, later, when I was an officer and helicopter pilot, I also worked in the supply uh, area. S four as we called it, and um, and had to had to write a lot of reports, and ended up being the uh, budget officer and all that kind of stuff, which which worked out pretty well. Because then I got out of the service in '86 and went to work at Boeing, worked in the corporate world uh, for a while as a as a contract contractor or a a, um, contract administrator buyer. And uh, worked on the B-1 bomber project, 747, you know, all over Boeing, commercial and military. So I, I got a lot of different uh, uh, experiences. But during that whole time, I, you know, had a family and, and uh, was going to school at night and uh, ended up getting my Ph.D. in history because I love storytelling. And really, that's what I do for a living, you know, whether I'm teaching or writing. I'm a storyteller and it, it could be a paranormal story, as it turns out now, or it could be about we mentioned uh, I, when we talked earlier about the Vietnam War, my military experience. So, uh, yeah, I, I uh, even women's leadership, you know, All right. talked so- about uh, I, I've written a couple of books about that. So now we got a woman vice president for the first time. That's pretty interesting. <clears throat> I did some research on women's uh, leadership and it's there. It, it, it's interesting because, especially in Norway, which is my you know cultural upbringing, um, there there've been women you know prime ministers since the '80s, and we there's a woman prime minister right now in Norway. In fact, I know her. I was Facebook friends with her until she became prime minister, and then they cut me off. But uh, she, uh, you know, that's it's just it's not a big deal. Women's leadership, you know, women in power, is not a big deal in Norway. It's pretty egalitarian. And there's really not that much difference between a man and a woman. If they're a good leader, they're a good leader. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter, man or woman. You know, I mean, look at Margaret Thatcher. You know, people thought, oh, women can't be good military leaders. I mean, they didn't call her the Iron Lady for nothing, you know. Right.
0: Uh, Who was the uh, Gilda Maier in in Israel in
1: in the 60s? Yeah, Gilda Maier. You don't mess around with Gilda Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yep. but so, so uh, I'm guessing now, cause I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure of, of, of this part. So I want to clarify this. You seem just a little bit too young to have been in NAM. Were you, did you actually serve in NAM or was your service after?
1: I, uh, I was, uh, after I joined in, uh, on, I actually joined the army on, uh, Halloween 1978. Oh yeah. Kind of an interesting day to join the army, but. i uh uh, my brother was in vietnam he's nine years older uh and he served two tours in vietnam he's a disabled veteran uh has agent orange related uh, leukemia and pretty bad ptsd from his experiences so i i grew up with all his stories and when i taught a vietnam war class and wrote the vietnam war book that i wrote i used uh, a lot of you know his experiences and my own experiences as a little brother you know reading the letters and looking at the slides that he sent home and um yeah so but all all the people that taught me stuff in the military all my drill sergeants my flight instructors senior officers and sergeants they were all vietnam vets so i was truly indoctrinated by that generation of veterans
0: Gotcha. So i uh, but I'm seeing on your web because you said the Vietnam era war book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Vietnam era is a is a book. Uh, yeah. Vietnam War era is one book. But then I'm seeing another one that's called Vietnam Journal. Uh yeah. so that's that- an
1: academic journal that I, I co edited with my friend David Wilson, who was a Vietnam vet. Uh and he uh we co-edited that journal and collected poetry, short stories. uh uh, memoirs and we published that for a couple of years uh so yeah i would i did that published an academic journal and i've written 10 books and three of them are paranormal books now so the last three
0: (laughs) i want to get to those because i have a keen interest in that but (laughs) i i I am i'm too young to 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 serve in um as well so and i didn't enlist anyone you know by the time my time came uh i I saw no purpose in really serving. There was no war going on in peacetime. What's the point of being in the military during the peacetime was my thinking at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I've been haunted by by the Vietnam War. I read everything I can, read, watch every documentary on it, and I'm still uh, torn by um, just how uh, there's a point in in, in, the, one, in the Ken Burns uh, documentary where one mm-hmm. of the vets who came back, and, and it's in the last one, he said, How you sum it up? He said, "What the fuck was that? What the fuck happened?" And that's exactly my feeling. Like, how could it was so messed up that how could we continue to make that mistake for as long as we did and not change course? Give me some insight from a historian's (laughs) point of view. How, how, what, what are the pressures and factors that make us go down a road where we know we're clearly, at least. The people in charge knew at some point uh, this is clearly not going to work out, but we're going to stay with it anyway. Uh, What kind
1: of? It's it's fascinating. I I share your fascination with with that, even though I didn't uh, serve during the Vietnam era. My brother did, but uh, I think there there were so many turning points in that war, uh, starting with when we started supporting the French. Uh, you know, like 85% of their war effort when they were fighting the Viet Minh, the Vietnamese communists. And then when they uh, got out of there and skedaddled out of there, we kind of filled the vacuum and then we kind of stumbled into it, tried to do some nation building. As a historian, whenever I hear about nation building, uh, it, I cringe because <laughs> I, that's a long process. I mean, look at us. We've been at it a long time. And we still have a lot of problems you know and so anyway when they say we can go in there and build this nation within a few years and and it's just it was uh you know the cia said it you know that was the chances of us building a uh, strong non-communist independent country in south vietnam was next to zero the chances that we were going to do it but there were a lot of pressures and you know that i think another big turning point was uh, the two assassinations in november of 63 you know, the first, everybody knows the Kennedy assassination, but before that was the South Vietnamese president. Had those two people lived, or even if one of them had lived, we would not have had a Vietnam War. So that's one of the big lessons, is that that opened the floodgates. When those two were, were gone, Johnson came in, and right. he, was, he was beholding to a lot of people, you know, probably in the defense industry. And uh, it, probably one of the smartest things, uh, Matt, that I've ever heard. I've heard a lot of smart things from veterans and non-veterans, but a friend of mine who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, um, uh, Viet Nguyen, he uh, uh, said—he's a very famous quote. He said that all wars are fought twice: once on the battlefield and once in memory. Oh I, yeah. I think it's it's so it's so profound because I've studied wars, you know, that's my specialty in us history is American wars, foreign policy. And when you think about that, yeah, there's the war on the battlefield, but then like you and I were fascinated with that period. It, there's a war in, in memory of that war. You know, what are we supposed to remember? How are we supposed to remember it? And uh, the debate goes on. I have so many Vietnam vet friends who have different divergent viewpoints on it. Right some are very remorseful and, you know, wish that we'd never gone. Others are saying, Hey, they, you know, we were winning. They didn't let us win and we could have won. And, you know, and we didn't lose, you know, it's the government that lost And it, you know, so I, I can't disagree with any of these vets. I mean, they actually were there, right? but, uh, but they oftentimes just have their perspective, their kind of narrow perspective. So interestingly enough, a friend of mine who, uh, Used to he reti- He's retired now, but he used to run the East LA Vet Center, the, where they do counseling, PTSD counseling for Vietnam vets, or for all veterans, actually. Uh, he uh, uh, invited me in to talk to his group, uh, his PTSD group, and most of them were Vietnam vets, most of them older than me, right? And I was supposed to go in there and, and get this. I was supposed to go in there and talk about the My Lai Massacre. And I thought I'm walking into a minefield. Right, (laughs) I'm walking into a minefield. So you know, I I wasn't there. You know, I'm some some academic. You know, guy walking in. Yes, I was a veteran, but I was never in combat. You know, and here I am coming in there shaking my credentials. You know, or whatever. And I'm going to teach these guys something about it. But what was really interesting was I did have uh, insights that helped them, and that really did help them. And I. I told them, you know, there were that that day in 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 uh, you know in in um, March of '68. There were heroes and there were villains, and uh, there were American heroes that day who did the right thing, and there were villains too. And yeah. isn't that really the story of all of our lives? I mean, we there are heroes and villains every day, and whatever we do, you know, well, it just wow. it just so happens that those villains had had guns and yeah. uh, it was a horrible outcome. Yeah. So, so I, what I thought would be a disaster, a massacre on my part, you know, that I would, <laughs> you know, these guys would tear me apart. It was a very enlightening, uh, enlightening discussion and very emotional.
0: I can uh, imagine what you must've been thinking going into that. Like yeah. that's a no win situation, but a couple of points that you, you brought mm-hmm. up in there that I would like to kind of address the guys who said, we were winning. We could have won. No, there was nothing to win. I think the outcome proved there was nothing to win. What we were going there was to stop the spread of communism, yeah. uh, according to the what we were told. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we 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 the com- country fell to communism. Communism fell of its own weight. So there was nothing for us to win. Even if, what we if okay, we could have fought. We could have won the battles, but the war itself won itself eventually without us having to do anything. So there really was nothing for us to win. The best strategy was to let communism just fall on its own. And uh, so uh, the question I have now with my perspective on that, and I don't know if you agree with me on that, uh, but uh, do you think we learned anything from that war as a country, as a people, as as the world? uh, uh, You know, did we learn anything about, uh, wars, the reasons we get into them, what not to do, and the big lesson of, for me, this boogeyman that we we create in order to start wars, so like communism, as mm-hmm. uh, if the spread of communism from all the way around the globe. If we let that country that nobody's ever heard of to this point fall to communism, soon it will be in, in my backyard, uh, I think is a tragic mistake. So I'll let you talk to that. But I just think, yeah. have we have we learned anything?
1: Well, yes and no. I, I would say, uh, and we've learned different types of lessons. There is uh, one lesson is that we shouldn't get, uh, you know, head into a war that we don't, if we don't understand the people, we don't understand the culture, the history, and we don't understand the circumstances. We miss, you know, a misreading of the circumstances on the ground, you know, a civil war type situation, uh, and you know that we we need to cut our loss as soon as we, if we do, and we realize that we should cut the losses early. And not get involved in an investment trap, which is once you've invested, it's hard to divest, you know, especially because especially when you lose people and then you get people saying, uh, why did my son have to die? Right. You, know, you mean we're going to quit now and you my my son is dead, you know, so that's an investment trap. And then there's the, the other lesson, which is that uh, we win the wars we, we engage in no matter what and we'll take it to whatever degree. You know, we're never supposed to lose. And it, it becomes a, uh, well, I'll, I'll share this quote of Ho Chi Minh, you know, the North Vietnamese uh, leader, nationalist, communist. And here's here's the problem we had, one of the problems. He said that you, we may not win, but you will sh- certainly not win. Right. He was willing to fight. They were willing to fight forever. And they had, they fought The Chinese for a thousand years, the French for a hundred years, the Japanese during World War II, along with us, actually, you know, they they weren't going to quit. They weren't and they lost every battle of consequence, but it didn't matter. Right. They were just going to outlast us. They knew eventually we'd we'd go home. We'd find whatever reason. Henry Kissinger called it. uh, What did he call it? A. um, Oh, I forgot what he called it. You know, in, in other words, that that uh, you know we can find an opportune time to kind of slip out and, and maybe nobody'll notice, you know, right. that kind of a thing. Yeah. But it was it, it was a horrifying experience for those young men and women who were and our allies who were involved there. Once they realized that they were being used. Right. Politically used. And and my brother had a patch on top of his boonie hat, you know, those floppy green hats. He had a patch. Uh, Not in his first tour, but his second tour when he got, he understood what was going on. And the patch said, participant, Southeast Asia war games. Wow. And that's cynicism right there. He realized he was a pawn on a chessboard. And I remember we still have his letters, you know, I gave them back to him after I did the research. But the letters in the last few months of his uh, tour, he would sign a peace symbol at the bottom, you know. And say, you know, why am I here? I need to come home. And it was, but when he first got there, it was, we got to get these commies, and we, you know, and he had gone totally the different direction, protesting the war as he was fighting the war. A lot of, and that's the the the, the tale of all the guys who
0: went. Uh, before 67 at least, those guys who who went for the first time all went there with, I'm doing the right thing, I'm fighting a war for freedom for America. Very gung-ho about it. But it becomes impossible to win when the majority of the soldiers start adapting that uh, attitude that your brother eventually mm-hmm. came around to that I'm just being used here in somebody else's war game and uh, it, it's all just uh, political nonsense and not for the cause that we were told it becomes if you got have a majority of your army has that mindset there's no way you can win <laughs> it's, um,
1: yeah I mean uh, I think my my friend David Wilson the guy who mentioned earlier, He's one of my writing mentors, and he he was a clerk typist in Saigon, and uh, he he w- worked in General Westmoreland's uh, command in the uh, the building there, so he rubbed shoulders with generals all the time, and uh, he uh, uh, said that he 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 was getting into an argument once in a class w- where we were teaching, and and uh, one of the Vietnam vets was a grunt. He was an infantryman. And he said, "You don't know anything about war because you weren't out in on the rice paddies shooting at Charlie and and whatever." And, and David said, "I probably killed more G- American GIs with my memos than you've killed with your M16." Whoa. And you know the horrible thing is it was probably true. Yeah. He was covering up the fact the generals were covering up the fact the M16s were jamming, and we were losing guys and. Oh my God, it was such a reckoning uh, for both of them, you know, and, and for the students to witness this, you know, these two guys that have both been there, different experiences. but And they um, were
0: measuring things by body counts, and, and, and yeah. you know, instead of, you know, the whole way about that the war, where it, war was traditionally up until that point. A game of uh, of taking real estate. You take real yeah. estate and hold it. But in that war, it was more about uh, did we kill enough of them. The real estate was meaningless. So you take this hill, you fight for that hill, and then you leave that hill. And all all that matters is how many body bags did we have to use today. Yeah. That's a, a ridiculous way to kind of measure your success right from the right from the get go. But when you talk about those memos, that was the misleading part of it too. That encouraged the politicians to yeah. keep up the war, to, you know, painting this rosy picture that we were winning. Yeah. I don't know if they believe them. Do you have any uh, insight? Uh, did the politicians actually believe them, or they were just using them to further their political or, or solidify their political support?
1: It's it's an interesting question. I, I, can, I know for a fact, I, I, I read um, Robert McNamara's book in retrospect, oh. and he came out and said he, he apologized for his role. And he had a big role because you're talking about the body count. He, he was uh, president of Ford Motor before he became the defense secretary under Kennedy. And then Johnson, you know, grandfathered in with Johnson. And he did more than anything else to develop this kind of strategy, which makes sense in the business world. Right. But doesn't make sense in war. You're, you're absolutely right. It is, it is real estate. You, you take and hold land. And deny right. it to the enemy and inevitably march towards the enemy capital, capture or kill the leader. And that's it's like chess in that way, or football in, in that way, only much deadlier. I don't mean to, you know, oversimplify war, but what we were doing was we we ninety-five percent of South Vietnam, not North Vietnam, ninety-five percent of South Vietnam was never under our control, ever. Right. Right. We didn't have enough guys there. We, you know, they, they said, well, we had 500,000, we had a half a million people. It's a big country and, right. and a very wild country, you know, not, not easy to get around. That's why they used a lot of helicopters, but we controlled fire bases. We controlled, uh, you know, our main bases, Saigon, and that was it. The rest of it was under communist control, either the yeah. Viet Cong or the, or the North Vietnamese army that was invading from the North. And uh, if we had 500,000 soldiers, there are. Our supply and logistics tail is so long. For every one infantryman, we have four people in the rear supporting that infantryman. So that means we only at any time had 100,000 soldiers actually fighting day to day out in the field. So they were severely outnumbered all the time. And it was a 360-degree war. The enemy was all around
0: Right, they had millions of people in there. Yeah, I, I think they lost two million compared to our fifty-eight thousand, which yeah. is uh, it, not, when you think about two million people, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't think America would ever have the stomach for that. But uh, meant, mentioning this stuff about holding real estate, that's why I ask: it, Did we learn anything? Because so I look at Iraq and Afghanistan, it seems like that idea of body count mattering more than holding any specific mountain or any p- specific range uh, still holds true. Like w- I'm wondering, did, did our government not pay attention during Vietnam or uh, w- what did they learn? Because it doesn't seem like they've learned much from a military standpoint. Sure. We mm-hmm. have great, we have killer weapons and, and aircraft carriers and the best uh, air air force going, but, Are we still, are we a superpower? If we can't, if we can't beat people with sticks and stones living in, in in almost a (laughs) a prehistoric lifestyle in the middle of Afghanistan or Vietnam or wherever, uh, are we really a great military and have we really learned anything? And that's, that's still a question.
1: No, I think it's a great question. And I would, I would qualify my answer by saying uh, we've learned some things, but we haven't learned the main lesson, you know, and, and it comes down, I don't mean to oversimplify, but it's kind of an interesting quote that I heard recently uh, that uh, nobody really wins a war. One side loses more slowly than the other.
0: Yeah.
1: Because everybody's losing. Right. And, 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 and just when one side starts losing faster than the other side, usually that's when the balance tips. And, right. Uh, but yeah, you got to, you got to, uh, the only way to control land is to have boots on the ground. You can't control it from the air. Air superiority does, you can bomb all day long, which we did in Vietnam. <laughs> and, uh, you know, more more bombs dropped just on South Vietnam than all theaters of battle in World War II. Right. And still, we couldn't control, you know, what was what was going on, the infiltration, the insurrection, with, or, or what they now would call insurgency, then they called guerrilla warfare. It was a mess from the beginning. It was a mess politically, socially, economically, uh, and of course, we also had uh, uh, you know a, a civil rights movement going on at the same time. And then after Martin Luther King was killed, it became a very cynical. It took a turn towards black power and a very different approach, you know, yeah. um, than than King's approach. Who had turned against the war a year before he was killed? In fact, that's probably one of the reasons he was killed. It's because he turned against the war. Right, he kind of did a pivot. Oh, uh, uh, course- you, you
0: saying that is uh, you? And, and you said the word pivot because is it that's a perfect point to pivot. I was going to ask you, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, no, no. I was I, I was planning on asking you about the Kennedy thing and and mm-hmm. if you were conspiratorial minded, but saying that King was killed for his, his turn against the war definitely uh, suggests that you have some conspiratorial, um, you know, <laughs> d- d- bent on, on, on that take because uh, the story we're given is just a crazy white racist uh, who, yeah. who killed him. So. Who, uh,
1: who, who let, his let's do
0: that pivot. Uh, I, I guess you will have some conspiratorial um, sure. inclination on both of
1: those assassinations. Yes. And, Conspiracies are. I I always tell my students. I I love conspiracies because it gets people interested in history. And then once you get them down in there, then you can start dealing. Well, what seems to make sense, and what has good preponderance of evidence, and what is kind of skeptical, you know, a little bit too far out there. Maybe we shouldn't go that direction. But if you get people's interest, that's good because then they're they're thinking. They're paying attention. You know, they're 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 not just accepting everything they're told course you don't want to get to the point of paranoia you know where you think everything's a conspiracy so it's it's a slippery slope you got to be careful but with those two things i i have never been satisfied with the answers we've been given uh on the kennedy either kennedy assassination jfk or or robert f kennedy in fact i i always point out that there were four major political assassinations in the span of five years in the 60s from 63 to 68, you had first you had John F. Kennedy, then you had Malcolm X, and then you had uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in the same year. Right. If that, and I always ask my students, I said, if in the next five years, God forbid, if we were to have a president assassinated, uh, and one person that was probably about to become president, and two major civil rights leaders, would you be suspicious? <laughs> and they always think, yeah, yeah, i think be suspicious. Okay, <laughs> yeah, You're suspicious. Oh. Now you know. And then when you start breaking it down and you look at it, which in my Vietnam class we take a lot of time looking at uh, the JFK assassination, and um, most students come to the conclusion, I don't think we've been told the truth. <laughs> I don't know. If, you know, they maybe some of them don't want to go the conspiracy. But I, I just feel funny about what we've been told. It doesn't seem to make sense. Right. And and Martin Luther King, there I think there were two things that got him killed. One was his uh, pivot towards uh, against the war, and also his pivot towards the poor people's campaign. That's why he was in Memphis. Was not necessarily for civil rights or equality. He was there for the garbage strike, the garbage collectors strike. That's right. And he he wanted to include all poor people. He wanted to raise them up. And at that point, he was told by his friends in the civil rights movement. Martin, they're already trying to kill you for equality. Now you're turning against the war, and you're talking about socialism. You're a dead man. Right. Yeah, you know, they, they warned him, and he knew he knew that.
0: Right. So uh, he, he, was, he was with, with King and Lincoln. I think uh, they both. Uh, were well aware that they, they were about to be assassinated or, or yeah. that there would at least be an attempt on him and were yeah. bravely into I don't think Kennedy uh, was really thinking in terms that he would be assassinated uh, or obviously Bobby wasn't thinking he he should have been by that time. Having you know his his brother and King and yeah. and Malcolm X be assassinated, yeah. he he should have had much higher security than he did. Than yeah. especially walking around with the name Kennedy on. Uh, yeah. interesting your take on on King because uh, King is the only one of those that I ever really. Uh, was unsure of in my mind that there was some some level of conspiracy, but the uh, the thing that gets me about John F. Kennedy, and I, I don't think enough has ever been uh, made of this. The whole thing where I believe it has to have been a conspiracy is the coincidence that some people accept as a coincidence that the guy with the motive opportunity and ability to take that shot even if you think lee harvey oswald lee R- oswald not lee harvey because harvey was just never used in his name lee oswald but if you believe that he did the shooting and was alone the coincidence that he had a job at the one place which let, gave him the perfect sniper's nest to work mm-hmm. at during his lunchtime and the his victim just decided to drive mm-hmm. past with the roof down that day. Right. I mean you'd have to be insane to believe that coincidence is just a um a, just a coincidence and not a contrived um
1: situation that put oh, yeah. put him in. <laughs> right? And once once you start looking into it the, the the government story starts to break down immediately. Right. And I, I, you know, during my 30 years of teaching, I've met people that have been intimately connected with these assassinations. The, um, In fact, I have an eyewitness friend of mine. Uh, she was a nightclub dancer at, uh, at, not at Ruby's Carousel Club, but at another club. But she was friends with Jack Ruby. She was on, uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, the, not on the grassy knoll, but on the other side, in the the kind of the center there. And close to when, you know, the, the motorcade came came by and she told me that she heard at least five shots. Wow. And that's an eyewitness and her, not only her, but there were combat vets who were there who heard more than three shots. The government says there were only three shots because if if there's more than three shots, there's a conspiracy. They know that they got to limit it to three shots. She said she heard uh, five, two that were distant, you know, back where the motorcade came from. And two, that were on the grassy knoll and behind the white picket fence. So that, you know, these are people that, and she, I've had her talk to my Vietnam class and the students are just fascinated by it. And and every time she speaks publicly, she gets death threats. You know, somebody calls up, unidentified caller, you better shut up, you blank, you know, right. or you're dead, your family's dead, you know. So, uh, but she's been discredited by the government and a lot of, you know people who say, "Oh, well, she was just a nightclub dancer. she was using drugs, and she didn't know what she was doing. She didn't see anything. She was only seventeen or eighteen or whatever. So what does she know right. and um, and it's it's typical of any kind of conspiracy that is being covered up is that you don't attack the message you attack the messenger whenever you hear that going on when they're attacking the messenger, you know there's an a black op going on right. Because that's how they do it. They don't because if they attack the message, then they bring light to the conspiracy. Right. And like they're getting a defensive mode rather than just saying, Oh, that person's crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, what about their what they say? It doesn't matter what they say. They're crazy.
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm gathering you probably had this kind of inclination growing up in that time that things didn't add up. And I'm wondering if those uh, where your interest in paranormal started, paranormal stuff started from. Did it start from uh, not this idea of the government's been lying to, lying to us about several things? Is that where it came from for you or did, did you have an experience where? You know, a sighting or something? Where did your interest in paranormal stuff come from?
1: Yeah, no, good question, Matt. Yeah, the, um, that, those incidents, those things, uh, the take I have on it is because I've had paranormal experiences before from a very young age. And my mother was very psychic. And she kind of taught me some things like mind reading, you know, telepathy. We used to read cards. (laughs) We would have a, a deck of playing cards when I was a young kid. We would have a deck of playing cards, and we'd hold them up, and I would send, she would send, and we'd take turns. And we'd get a very good hit rate. Now, my dad, he walks into the living room, sees us doing this, and he lets it go for a little while, and then he says, okay, that's put it away. I don't like it. Put it away. He He was old school. He was a fisherman, you know, like the deadliest catch guys up in Alaska. He was a fisherman and a carpenter. When he wasn't fishing, he was building houses. Very practical, old school, blue collar union guy, you know, and he took no nonsense, but he wasn't afraid of anything except that. He did not like that. And so my mom would, you know, we'd both, okay. And we, my mom would put the cards away and then she'd wink at me, you know, like, okay, we're doing what dad says, but you know, and I know what's going on. And uh, I had, my first paranormal experience was when I was four or five years old, and it was an angelic healing experience in Northern Norway. We were visiting my grandmother, and uh, I was miraculously cured of whatever. I had a severe fever, uh, a high fever. I couldn't move my head. My neck was uh, frozen stiff. My, I couldn't move my limbs, and it, they thought I was going to die. And I, in the middle of the night, I saw a, a, a bright light above me and, um, and I felt fine after that. And I woke up and I was completely fine. And my mom and my grandmother, uh, it was my grandmother's house in Northern Norway, uh, said it was a miracle. That was my guardian angel that had saved me. Uh, wow. And so from that, I think what that did is just open the doors of perception. You know, and like, uh, who was it? Uh, William Blake. You know, once the, the doors of perception are opened, you see this, the state of, of, of infinity, you know, that you see the universe. And I think that's what happened. Wow! Uh, and I just started having random and frequent uh, paranormal, odd, mind blowing things happen throughout my life, you know talking, you know, being at a a funeral when I was a young teenager at an open casket funeral, and the person in the casket was talking to me, that can freak a person out.
0: Yes, yes, that would definitely freak me out. What
1: are you going to say? Are you going to get up and say, hey, that person just talked"? No, you've been taught. You can't, you know, keep (laughs) it to yourself. And um, at school, you know, I'd go to school. When I first started school, I remember talking to the teacher and my fellow students about my invisible playmates that I had and i had two of them and uh, they were very real to me and i was told you know that's nice but you're in school now you're a big boy you can't talk about that stuff anymore that's not real so i i learned very quickly that in polite society you know you can't discuss these things and
0: I I just let some some of my light. You can continue talking. I'll work on this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, that was very mysterious there. Yeah. Oh, I
0: see. I see what's happening here.
1: No. So, um, uh, yeah. So I think that that I think kids are very naturally in tune with this stuff. You know, they, you know, they they're very psychic and very and are open to the paranormal, but they get taught institutionalized into thinking that it's not real. But because my mother was very open and very psychic, she kept, you know, encouraging me. So I would have my my public persona at school, and I'd come home, and my mom and I would have our our discussions and our understanding of the universe and what was, you know, the miracle that we live in in the universe. And uh, it was all very natural. So I was able to keep that that youthful outlook about the paranormal. Wow. Uh... And, So yeah, I've had experiences since I was four or five years old, and up to and including uh, this morning. So that's (laughs) an interesting
0: thing because uh, I I tend to think that people uh, and uh, because I've had, believe it or not, I've had several people from Norway on uh, that Mm -hmm. uh, people in Norway were more open to the you know paranormal thinking than than necessarily the united states is or treated it more with an open mind at least the people i've talked to over there is that the case because if your father was a native guy from there and he was kind of freaked out by it, it doesn't seem like that uh, i have it right <laughs> i'm yeah to-
1: and You know, it wasn't that he wasn't a believer. It's just that he didn't like it. Oh, okay. It It was one thing that scared everybody. One thing, right? Even the deadliest catch guys, you know, and the guy that was in a labor camp in Nazi time. I mean, even those guys have, you know, at least one fear and that was. was Okay. So he was more
0: spooked out by it than, than, than a a total non-believer. I get it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So now, though you're I- I active and involved in Ciro and mufan uh yeah. and uh, where when i read you're going to be a speaker at uh, the uh contact in the desert in in this yeah. year this year uh so your your role is not just as a interested party but you're actually a little you're pretty active in it if you're speaking at a conference like that so tell yeah. tell me what what your what is the the extent of your activism or what you're doing with that
1: yeah well i just i just share you know i i published and i wrote the three books the paranormal books timeless timeless deja vu and timeless trinity which documents 89 different paranormal events in my life that happened to me not to other people but to me and uh i but it took a while to, you know it it wasn't until 2016 after my friend died my friend gene he was a childhood friend norwegian american parents too uh he died and a, a month after he died in uh october of 2016 he came to me in a vision now i've talked to dead people before it wasn't unusual in that respect but here was one of my good childhood buddies i was broken up about his death he comes to me in a vision as clear as you and I are talking. I saw him and he told me that it was time to tell my stories. And I, I said, well, I don't know. You know, I I could lose my job. You know, there's, I, I'm a professor and I, you know, people are not going to take me seriously anymore. My students will laugh at me. The college will figure out a way to retire me early or, you know, something will happen. My colleagues will abandon me. I'll lose friends, family. He said, don't worry about it. He said, just just do it. And uh, he even gave me the title of the of the series. He said to call it Timeless because he based that on his impression of the afterworld, which was that there was no future and there's no past. There's just an eternal present and, and time moves in all directions and it, it's all together. And he said there was nothing to fear. That's the other thing he told me. There's nothing to fear about death. But he also said, don't, squander your life, your opportunity now, but don't fear what happens in the afterlife he says because I'm okay. And wow. he had a very funny thing to say cuz I had a natural reaction when I saw him. I said, "Hey Gene, you know what what's it like to be dead?" <laughs> and which most people would probably ask, you know, here's this guy, I know he died a month before and and uh, he said uh he laughed and that he has a great sense of humor and he said, "You know, uh, I don't feel dead, and he said, "Besides that, would I be talking to you if I was really dead?" Oh, and kind of blew my mind. I said, well, okay. yeah,
0: kind of heavy. That's a heavy. I never heard that one before. <laughs> it's,
1: it's a good. It's a good point. So, um, anyway, so then I started writing these books. The first one, I tried not to go too bizarre. I didn't talk about aliens in the first one. <laughs> I I just wanted to test the waters, even though gene you know told me it'd be okay i I was still being cautious so good reaction you know then i published the second one went a little bit further i had a little alien thing at the end kind of a little teaser at the end and uh and uh that the reaction was good the college said uh yes when i asked if i could teach a paranormal course nobody was more surprised than me uh and then i said okay i'm gonna go for it you know these two books are letting me teach a class I'm going to do my third book and I'm just going to, I'm going to let it all hang out. So uh, I, I put everything in there, everything that I held back in the other two books. And I'm, I'm glad I did. And uh, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine who's now retired, he said, well, it's really good when he read my third book. He said, wow. He said, it's really good that you have tenure and that you're close to retirement. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. I, if I was starting out, I probably, you know, wouldn't have done that, but the time was right and uh i've had a very good reception i've had i've even had colleagues take the paranormal class uh because everybody is interested
0: of course everybody Uh,
1: even skeptics are interested and debunkers are interested i had a friend who's a debunker well he was when he started the class he thought he was just gonna you know oh that's crazy you know that's stupid or whatever and by the end of the class he was asking me uh about animal spirits because he said they're a a cat that he had had that died was still in his house. He felt it. And I said, Yeah, it's very common, you know, that you that you would encounter that. And I said, that's definitely paranormal. So I'm not saying he was a true believer, but he started his debunking went to skepticism, went to kind of milder skepticism by the end
0: Less. That's a, a point I bring up every time we talk about paranormal stuff is that I'm a skeptic, but a uh, mm-hmm. skeptic doesn't mean you're not a believer. It means you no. keep an open mind and question
1: everything. Uh, there's a diff- big
0: difference sometimes. between cynicism and skepticism.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm skeptical. So if I, somebody tells me a fantastic story, I, I, I'm very polite and I'm, okay. And I think about it and then I want to think about it and I want to process it. And then I eventually say, okay, that, you know, maybe that did happen to them. Right. But we're human beings, so we're going to be a little a, a, a little skeptical because it didn't happen to us. so right. you got to take it on on faith on you know on the, what the person says. Um, but when you start having the same experiences or if you have an experience with somebody where you're both looking at each other so I'm not crazy right? I'm not dreaming no, you're not crazy, you're not dreaming. When you have those kind of things, you have enough of those things, enough experiences, it leads to belief. And the belief then opens up the door a little bit more to more experiences. More experiences, more belief. And before you know it, the aperture is wide open. Well, unfortunately, you have to learn how to manage it. (laughs) Right. Unfortunately, if if I come from a good place
0: with the best intent in asking questions, I'm not, I don't really care about uh, trying to debunk somebody, but it will come off as I'm trying to debunk them because I'm curious about how why all those kind of questions like uh you know so if if somebody tells me aliens are here mm. i can accept that that's very possible but i want to know why and if i ask why it seems like some people who are really invested in it if just asking why is an indication to them that i'm trying to uh you know debunk them or or prove yeah. them wrong which is not the case i really want to know why do you believe that yeah, you know, not why do you believe it, but why do you believe that they would are uh, here? What, what, why do you think they came, would come here? What, what would be their purpose? And so, those kind of questions often are perceived as as trying to debunk stuff. So, uh, if I and I know this it, when I say paranormal, it's way too big a, a, a spirit to kind of say what is your belief on all these things. But like, if we can take one at a time, UFOs and aliens, can you sum up your uh, thoughts on on where we are with that
1: well i I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with and I, I like to collect quotes from people that are profound because uh, I think a lot of people have said much more t- profound things than I have so I collect those but my friend Gene I asked him about this because he's in the he's in the spirit world and you know I figure okay he knows something and he told me we are the aliens that's what he told me we are the aliens And I asked him, I said, well, wait a second, you mean like you you, and the guys where you're with and the spirit where you guys are? He said, no, we, all of us, all of us are.
0: So then none of us are.
1: We're all related. (laughs) We're all related. That's the whole idea. So why are they coming? We're related.
0: Okay. And, And
1: then when you think of the other reasons why they would come, as a historian, I think, well, the discovery of the new world, right? When the old world met the the new world, why did those people come? Because, well, they had more, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, technology, right? That was one reason why they came. But then there were different reasons why they came. There were conquistadors who obviously had their thing they were doing. There were missionaries who had their reasons. There were merchants and, you know, gold seekers and other people. They had all their own reasons. Uh, Settlers. Uh, you know, all adventurers, you know, there's all scientific research. There were so many different reasons for them wanting to make contact. Well, maybe we can kind of loosely use that model to understand why would alien entities who are really related to us, which the old and the new world were too, they were related because we all came from the same uh, you know, Great Rift Valley in East Africa. You know, that's where people originated from, according to archaeological evidence so they came for different reasons and i kind of used that model to understand well why are there different experiences you know people have these different some people have these very pleasant experiences myself mostly pleasant uh with uh non-human entities um, and other people having these horrifying uh, you know traumatizing experiences so I think if you talk to the Native Americans, they they might have a a range of views too who were originally around when the the, the first contact was made. Some made out okay. A lot of them didn't. But there were different reasons for people making that contact.
0: I think uh, if, and this is just my uh, guessing because I don't base this on any scientific evidence at all, but knowing what I know about Drug use and I'm talking specifically uh, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I know people will have the same reaction. Some people will have a very good trip. With same substance, and some people will have very bad trips. And I'm, and I'm thinking of specifically of DMT, which I would love to experience. If anybody knows how, I can. You can set, drop me a line and involve mine. I won't rat you out. It's um th- this idea of DMT being a portal to these kinds of things uh, that people talk about. But uh, I think just to to my point I was making, I think that a negative or positive experience depends on our Personal makeup and our psyche, uh, and what we put on it—not necessarily yeah. the external stimuli that we're getting from it. Does that and make sense?
1: And, and yes, and no, I I very much agree with that. And you know, as far as getting there, getting contact into that. Well, I'll just say this is my theory: the the spirit world, the alien world, and the quantum world are all the same thing. They're all the same thing, and I'm not the only one. that thing there's physicists. You know who think this quantum physicists who believe this too. Now some don't, and right. they will vehemently just push back on that. But others, others do, like even David Bohm. You know the one of the originators. You know or uh, carried on from uh, Linus Pauling about uh, the you know quantum world. Here, here's here's what I'm thinking. People who've experienced ghosts, they come. The ghosts come. They appear out of nowhere. And then they disappear they go through walls they go through ceilings and and doors right through solid objects right people who have seen encountered aliens they they come in out of nowhere and then they disappear they come in they vibrate out they vibrate in they even take people with them through doors through windows through rooftops and uh, transplant them back they're operating in the same realm this quantum realm which is the real is reality, but we don't, we construct our own reality to make it simpler for us. So we see the solid desk in front of us, the computer screen, the microphone, the lights, whatever. But in, in quantum reality, the subatomic level, it's very, very different. That's where time is immaterial. That's wow. where it doesn't matter where, whether you're here or on Venus, you know, you're connected because everything is connected. Of and, course, and, that and, makes and,
0: great sense to me.
1: And so that, that's the theory that I'm operating with. Nobody knows for sure, right? Just like you said, nobody knows for sure. Everybody's got I always say this, everybody's got a little piece of the puzzle. And what we need to do is share our pieces and see if we can figure this thing out.
0: Well, yeah. and and that that goes to the point that you made earlier with that rabbit hole that you open up when you when you're talking about conspiratorial things. Once you develop this kind of mind, and this is where I struggle with it, is because we get so many Ideas that are out there and people can imagine things or just come up with an idea and convince themselves that it's absolutely true. Get on an agenda to convince other people. And uh, I'm specifically thinking about flat earth people now and all the stuff that's going on. So but all that confuses this. And I think there is a genuine scientific endeavor here where we can look at this for the purpose of trying to gain some real serious knowledge about it. But when we have all these crazy people out there uh, just coming up with whatever idea they have and trying to throw it at the wall and see if it sticks, uh, it makes it harder to ever get any really serious discussion about this stuff or any serious consideration from people in the academic world. And I think that you're, that you're plays right. against
1: us. Yeah, you're right. Because the 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 academics and the scientists, and I know so I know like Dean Radin, who is the chief scientist at Ion's, uh, which was founded by astronaut uh, Edgar Mitchell, right? Uh, in the uh, after his his experience in space, right? uh dean uh, dean radin has written several books about quantum the quantum world quantum reality and the latest book he wrote was called real magic it's a great book i recommend it to anybody who's interested in this stuff anyway he's the chief scientist at ions and he said there is a real bias in the scientific world against people who are doing this research so when you announce that you're going to do psychic research you've already lost a lot of your grant opportunities and these guys operate by grant opportunities mm-hmm. money coming that they want to do research so you're already ostracized for that even though the belief is out there he gave us statistics it was amazing they they did a a, a survey of scientists and engineers working scientists and engineers and like 75% of them or higher i think it might have been a little higher have had a paranormal experience and do tend to believe that it does exist but they cannot talk about it because then they'll lose their positions they'll lose their funding and so we're handcuffed by by the stigma of it but i think that's slowly changing and the fact that you have your show and the other shows i've written my books we all do our part to try to break that down and say hey let's just take a look at this thing let's put our fears aside you know, it's kind of like my dad. He he knew it was there, but he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to deal with it. So
0: my my struggle with this is because uh, in uh, and I try to encourage people <laughs> for for I don't know what what it is in me. I I have a boner for the easter bunny i guess but i i talk to people and i, I say is there anything because if you want people to take you seriously i think you have to establish the fact that there are things that you will dismiss outright i encourage keeping an open mind but yeah. when i bring up the easter bunny and i ask people to tell me you know can you can we agree that that we can outright dismiss the concept of the easter bunny and most people on any level of Paris, uh, psychology or any of this stuff, where I talk about they refuse to outright. <laughs> dismiss the easter bunny as an idea i said well, well you wonder why people are not taking any of the other stuff credible as a credible uh, uh area of study is because you know you have to at least give me something here to, to let me know that you're not crazy and if you <laughs> tell me the, the easter bunny is a possibility that there's a possibility of a six foot bunny bringing eggs and chocolates to us on a day that is supposed to be holiday to uh sacred to one religion Mm-hmm. I have to think you are a little nuts, and so I, uh I think that's a big part of it is people are too open minded- i encourage open mindedness and questioning things, but you know there's some things we have to agree on that are just like silly Do you well, agree? You know,
1: and well and the, well here's here's the problem that um there are people and 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 God bless them, but you know that that just they have something wrong with them, you know, and they're they find out something and they go too far. And you know they they don't have a, a basis a theoretical basis for it or experience, but they just they might be delusional you know off their meds whatever and and I you know God bless them I I hope they're okay but and then there are there are also charlatans out there who don't help anything and they're they know what they're doing right they're, they're right. not delusional I feel sorry for the people that are delusional and I don't you know dislike them or whatever but they, who I don't like who i I try not to dislike anybody i try to find something but it really upsets me is when you find people who are deliberately deceiving other people they know they're deceiving them right it's not that they're delusional and they really do believe in the easter bunny they know there's no easter bunny but they're going to tell you there is because they're going to come out with a book or they're going to do this and they're going to try to make some money off it and unfortunately whether it's fraudulent psychics or people that you know know, some outrageous claim the more outrageous the more maybe books they can sell whatever um but uh and and that ruins it for anybody who wants it. it 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 really makes it harder for people who are serious about trying to find answers right you know like yourself and other people it really makes it harder i i don't blame the people who are mentally ill but i do blame the people who are deliberately deceiving and unfortunately in the ufo world there are those people they, some of them get exposed, some don't. I think eventually they usually do. In the psychic world, there's people who say that they're helping you talk to your dead loved ones for an exorbitant fee, you know, and just praying off of the, um, you know, the grief of a person who so desperately wants to believe. And I, I, I do know that you can talk to people in the afterlife. But and there are people who are very talented and do do that. Uh, but there's also people who lie about it right. and our, can do the cold reading, you know, that those techniques that you do on a carnival sideshow, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I, I, I every once in a while, somebody asks me if I can contact their dead relative or friend and I do it, but I never take money for it for, yeah. for two reasons. One, uh, I don't want to get into that business. I have a day job. I don't need to do that. And the other thing is that the information is not as accurate as people want it to be, and and they get very critical of it. Like if you do a reading for them, and you don't get every detail right, like well, you got the fact that he died on this date of cancer, and he liked, uh, he owned a uh, uh, a Kawasaki KZ seven fifty motorcycle, and he once went to uh, Mount Rushmore with Aunt Gladys, and he broke his leg. You know, and then but you get his middle name wrong, and they go that I don't believe it. <laughs> you know, and you're going wait a second. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that I you know all this other? Stuff? So really, it comes down to this, uh, Matt. If you're helping people, you're doing right. If yeah. that's the purpose of you doing this is to help people, that's what it's for. To be totally accurate, nobody's going to be able to do that.
0: Right. And
1: anybody who says I'll be a hundred percent accurate with my reading, no. They're 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 not being truthful, and then yeah. you have to beware. So it's really a buyer beware situation out there in the paranormal. I think part of part of the problem,
0: too, and I agree that there are charlatans out there and people who are have nefarious uh, mm-hmm. in, in, motives behind it. But there are well-intended in, people, even some who who do charge for it. I think part of the problem with um, inaccuracy. Uh, or whatever you want to call it, is that people who go for readings pre pre live the uh, what the reading is going to uh, uh, do and and what's going to the outcome of it before, and they have preconceived notions of who they want to talk to, and that may that may not you know may not happen, and then they get angry when. Uh, that the radio isn't tuning to the station that they wanted to tune to right. and, and and frustrated and all that stuff. So I think that leads to a whole part of it. I think, uh, yeah. uh, you know, moving on from, and we're, I know we're over the hour. Can I keep you a few more minutes? Cause no, we, that,
1: that's fine. And I just, I want to add, I don't want to totally disparage psychic. Cause I have friends that are psychics that are very good and very talented. So I'm just your listeners. I just want to say, be very careful. You know, if you go into that, make sure you're not so overwrought with grief that you're not, being logical and you don't have friends with you. I mean, you know, get, you know, uh, referrals from people, you know, don't just look in the phone book or whatever online and find somebody, Madam Cleo or somebody, you know, try to try to do it right. And uh, because this, it is a real thing and there is a signal line and, you know, and it's, I I can't explain how it works. I just know that this has been happening since I was a, a little kid and Uh, I don't think I'm special. I just think that it's a, it's a responsibility. So when people ask me, I, I, if I can, I will try to help them, but that's the purpose of it. Now, people who charge to do it, they need to make a living too. Everybody deserves to make a living. And if they're honest about it and they're honest with their clients, then I think that's wonderful because they're, they're helping.
0: Yeah. Um, before you said you asked your uh, friend, uh, Gene, if, um, it, what it's like to be dead, I'm not really worried about, uh, may, maybe this is just me, I'm not worried about what it's like to be dead, my, my fear, I don't fear death death the the experience of what mm-hmm. comes after this the actual moment the experience of dying i think is what really is the is the fear and i think that's what drives people What what is the mm-hmm. real fear for a lot of people it's not you know not being in a different dimension or whatever you want to classify it's going through the that painful experience birth was a horrible experience mm-hmm. at least as far as i remember it okay. uh but uh, i think most of us anticipate that final moment of life is being really painful and, and torturous. And so mm-hmm. that's where the real fear comes in. And for, for each one of us, I guess that's going to be yeah. uh, individual. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know.
1: And, you know, everybody has it, you know, there's uh, an old saying, it's better to die uh, one death than a thousand deaths.
0: Right. So in other yeah. words,
1: worrying about that moment is yeah. you're going through a thousand. of them when there's only, there's only going to be one. And uh, well, at least in this lifetime, you can get reincarnated. Might have to do it again, but <laughs> that's a whole other show, right? Does <laughs> it ever end up
0: in a conflict for you? And what I mean by that, obviously, uh, you touched on one that would would have been a fear for me: is getting into this field of study uh, might affect your 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 position as a, a history professor but does it ever end up in conflict where you're teaching a history course and somebody in the class knows of that this is another thing of your interest and they want to they want to kind of bring you over there with questions it more geared towards paranormal stuff than history
1: i i have had people bring it up and i'll I'll tell them a few stories during the regular class as it pertains to a certain like if we're talking about maybe we bring up the city of Chicago. I might talk about my experiences, paranormal experiences in Chicago, that are historically based and rather interesting. Uh, but the students have been great. You know that they, they they really and I mean just my regular history students. You know, and uh, I have them do X, if they want to do extra credit. I say okay, read my paranormal books, and all of them, even the ones that eh, I don't know if I want to. You know, they all enjoy it because they all have had most people have had these experiences and uh, they just have never had an opportunity to be allowed to talk or write about it. And uh, almost everybody has had, and even the ones that claim they haven't, I always ask them, uh, well, if they want to bring up the conversation, I say, have you ever felt like somebody's staring at you? And then you turn around and sure enough, somebody's staring at you. That's a very common experience. Almost everybody's had that, right? You just feel like, Hey, why is that guy staring at me? Right, that's paranormal, right? You don't have eyes in the back of your head. How do you know that? You right, know? we don't have spidey senses. So how do we how do we know that? You know, it's yeah. it's paranormal that and that is an ancient thing that ancient people used very often because they lived in a much more dangerous. I mean, we think we live in dangerous times now. How about those people that lived in caves? You know, with saber toothed tigers and <laughs> cave bears and God knows what else is outside of their cave, you know. I mean, they have <laughs> yeah. to have eyes in the back of their head and use their gut, which what that's what we say. We say we use our gut, you know, my instinct. You know, what is that? That's really a sixth sense.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to that, you know, I, I go with the Conan Doyle uh description of that where esp is really heightened sensitive perception it's just we're using the same five senses we're just more aware uh more in tune with them more uh aware of them and and cognizant of them um but i think we can i think we we've kind of you know i I could go on with the paranormal stuff all day long but i don't want to and i have you for a limited time so i want to understand more now you write books you write plays what is the timeless series the most recent book. Uh, that you have out, or is there another uh, one that is more recent publication?
1: Uh, I have. Uh, uh, that's the most recent book uh, came out last year. I also write and publish comic books too.
0: Right, Snark is one, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, and it's it's he's an alien hybrid uh, character, and uh, that it was. It took me 37 years to do that first Snark comic book. I started off. <laughs> illustrating and writing a comic strip while I I was in engineering school at Montana Tech in 1982. And I had to put it aside. And uh, I I came back to it and had an illustrator friend, Gary Dumb, who lives in Cleveland. He worked with Harvey P. Carr and American Splendor and well known since the 70s as a comic book illustrator. He uh, uh, offered to illustrate it for me. And uh, so I did that and it's a lifelong dream because I I learned to read because of comic books. I owe a lot to comic books. Yeah, I wouldn't I be a professor all... today if it wasn't for comic books.
0: I think we all owe comic yeah. books some kind of. Uh, yeah. Now, um, before I uh, talk about this play, Trip, mm-hmm. through, trip Through Hell, because I think that's the, are you a musician and a, a songwriter, or the music on your site, is that you, is it a band? <laughs> what it's, is it's, it?
1: it's me and my band, yeah, and most of those songs I wrote, uh, some of them are co-wrote with my friend, and some are my friend's songs. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a musician. We've had a, what we call a teacher band, you know, fellow teachers, uh, since I started teaching at Citrus in 1998. We we started a band and we've just been playing ever since. Now we don't gig or anything. We used to gig a little bit, but we 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 take a long hiatus sometimes years, you know, before we do another gig. Right. So, um, but yeah, yeah, I'm a songwriter. I I I do play the guitar. I do sing, but my main forte is songwriting. Gotcha. So, yeah. so I, 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 I love it. I love music. I just you know, I it's another way of expressing. Uh, ourselves it's you know I, yeah. I enjoy it so much
0: i do too now yeah. did, did you write the the music that's behind the trailer for for this
1: uh for a tough trip through hell yeah uh yes i think i wrote that one i'm trying to think uh yes i did write that
0: that's very cool stuff A spaghetti yeah. western type feel too.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I love that stuff now t- t- the play
0: uh, according to uh, what I'm reading here, this opened October
1: 28th of this year, uh, of 2020? Uh, yes, it, came, it was uh, late last year. We, we yeah. did it in five episodes because it's a very complex play. The play is actually the guy I mentioned earlier, David Wilson. He wrote uh, an unpublished novel called Tough Trip Through Hell about his great-great-grandfather's experiences in in Virginia City, Montana. Uh, in the western frontier after the civil war and uh, I took that unpublished novel I turned it into a play had to change a lot of stuff but made it into a play adapted it into a play and then along with my production team we adapted it into a stream play which is what we have to do now it's online it's live the actors are in remote locations we got a 3d uh, virtual world set that we have genius guys, a genius guy working with us named Jordan, who creates that for us. And so we can present plays, live theater, even during lockdown. And that's why we call it lockdown theater. That's okay. So you answered a lot of questions <laughs> to me because I was like, what's the point of, of putting a play out when nobody can go to theater? <laughs> that, was, that was really confusing. me. So in it's in a, a teleplay. people can see it because anybody who's got, a, got the internet can see it.
0: Right. Okay. Very cool. Uh, so is, is that uh, a different experience than, uh, for you than writing a book, uh, the whole idea of, um, it's, a, it's almost like taking, uh, adapting a book to a, to a screenplay. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Not almost like that. That's, that's what it is. Is that a different experience in writing a book?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and writing, I've written, uh, 10 plays. One of them was adapted. The other nine are my own uh, that I wrote. Um, adapt well writing a book versus writing a play writing a book it's uh, the easiest way to think of it is it it's all in the reader's head you're creating all the imagery everything into their head in a play they are witnessing it on stage whether it's a virtual stage or in front of them so it's a very different uh, look to it and it's different than a movie because it's live you know right. so that's what i love about live theater is it it's got some rough edges because there's always mistakes. Now the audience doesn't always know it. The playwright knows it, the director knows it, the actor knows it, you know. But I I love the organic uh, nature of it and and how you have to work together. Writing a novel or a book is a very insular thing. You know, it's very in your own mind, sitting there alone. You write a play, you present it to a director, you present it to the production staff, the lighting director, it's now your baby is out in the world, and people are adding their stuff to it. It's a very communal experience, which right. is difficult for some people. They don't want to let go. They want to try to control it. When you really have to let it go, it's like when you let your child go into the world, you know, and right. you hope you hope they make it, you know. <laughs> and that, that's kind well, of the way it is with a with a play. And I I enjoy both. I enjoy writing books. I enjoy writing songs. I I enjoy writing. Period, and expressing myself. I, st- I illustrate, I don't illustrate the comic books, I give the illustrator my rough sketches that he then makes beautiful and comes wow. up with his own, he's an expert at sequential art, so like I'll give him a rough idea and he'll say, well, you know, you got to present it this way you know, and who might argue with him, he's been doing it for 50 years, you know, so.
0: Right, very <clears throat> cool stuff. Um. So, and you are, ma- and if I have this correct, and if I don't, I'm sorry, but you're, you're married to also a helicopter pilot, so you're both helicopter pilots? Yeah,
1: yeah, Ginger's uh, much more experienced than me. She's actually a certified flight instructor, helicopter pilot, and the number of women in the world who are Certified flight instructors for helicopters. You can count on, you know, very few hands. Right. One of the few. And she's, she's flown for the police and tours and, and uh, all, you know, uh, all kinds of different types of flying, but she has a lot, many, you know, thousands of hours. It's so a, that, it it seemed like it we, would be a really cool date, like to
0: take up uh, twin helicopters and just go, <laughs> like you know, when you go bike riding with a girl or something. <laughs> yeah, we've <never laughs>
1: flown separate. We've flown together, but not yeah.
0: Uh, uh, no, no, that would be pretty cool. though, I think uh, it it would yeah. be different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like I imagine, right from the opening, yeah. you're a very uh, multi dimensional uh, person and very uh, led a very full life and very interesting life uh it, it's it's a lot to take in so when describing you you know this is not a typical uh, and somebody in the chat room said you're all over the place i was like yeah i wanted to say well you should tuned in for the first three minutes or read the description for the program uh <laughs> it's not that i'm all over the place it's that you're all over the place and trying to, to kind of highlight you and and uh and get to know you and and meet the author is a difficult task when we have somebody who's uh, so diverse and so full of uh, very interesting, different, divergent fields. So uh,
1: I, I appreciate that, Matt, and I feel the same about you. You converse about these things, you're very interested in all these things. So
0: I, I am. Well, I'm a history buff. I'm a paranormal buff. I'm a music buff. I'm mm-hmm. a, a reading book, a literature buff. Uh, more towards nonfiction myself, and I'm also a, a big fan of that period. That uh, trip to hell is not necessarily uh, Wyoming or any. I'm more of a Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, yeah. o- Oklahoma history guy, even
1: California to some extent. But oh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I had so much fun, uh, you know, uh, adapting that that book into a, a play and. It was quite a challenge, you know, but it was it was a lot of fun. And you know, David Wilson, that guy who wrote it, he's you know he's dying of cancer right now. He's he's not going to last much longer. So the crew was motivated, the actors were motivated to get the thing produced and out there, so he could see it before he passes away. And he did. So I can tell you, he did see it. Wow. He, he's still hanging in there, but he's you know he's not doing well.
0: So for people to support you, your books, your the play, all, all the stuff you do, they just go to the website, is that the best way to? That's to,
1: central location for all of the craziness. Yeah, right there, okay. Ball, so, And, so, yeah. Yeah, of course, Amazon, all the books are available there. And uh, the comic book, you can go to my website, and you can get a hold of the comic book, uh, digital comic, or you can order, a, a if you're a collector, you know that first edition, number one snark. You know it's going to be worth a lot someday. When did that come out? It came out actually uh, the the end of 2019, beginning of 2020.
0: Okay, so you so haven't and, you have done snark
1: coming out in two months. Snark right. two is coming out in two months.
0: Oh, very good. Well, come back and promote that when it when when it comes that'd, out. Um, that'd be fun. So but the the follow up question there was since it only came out then you haven't had a, uh an opportunity to like bring it to Comic-Con or any of that kind of crazy. One,
1: we did the Pasadena Comic-Con uh before the lockdown set in in California and we had a blast. I mean yeah. I met, I met some uh, like the guy from Mad uh Sergio oh, god what's his name? Uh Anyway, I, I met the you know this guy that had been illustrating Mad Magazine, and I love Mad Magazine, you know. Well, me was, too. Yeah. I grew up on it. <laughs> yeah, Sergio uh, Arganis. Oh, God. Yeah. And I got his signature, and he did a little doodle for me, and that, yeah, it was great. I met a lot of other artists from Marvel and DC, and uh, the Kool Aid Man was there. Yeah, it was fun. Wow, what a <laughs> it. it's just craziness, you know, and it's it's I loved it what a what a very cool life
0: you've led and continue to lead and i hope you uh, i'm wishing you great success moving forward really please when the, oh, when the next you. edition of the Snark comes out uh, uh please come back and promote it and then i can ask some more questions that are all over the place and we we can take sure. it even beyond the ufo stuff and I, the
1: paranormal <laughs> i enjoyed our our multifaceted conversation I,
0: I did too uh we are out of time though but i definitely want you to come back if you will do that i would appreciate yep. it so. yes i will great thank you for, for coming tonight thanks for all the insight and great information that was all over the place but it was definitely interesting for me if interesting for me it's got to be interesting for them too so i sure, thank exactly thanks man great success thanks bye <laughs> this episode is brought to you by put me in the story put me in the story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% stall-wide when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by Vapor DNA. Founded in 2013, Vapor DNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code OrionQ. Bruce Olaf uh, Solheim, folks, I hope you got a uh, uh, lot out of that. Of course, there was a lot to get out of that. I uh, hope you enjoyed this program. Tomorrow. I just want to say uh, tomorrow we are continuing (laughs) with this very interesting people, multi-dimensional people with lots and lots of different talents and gifts uh, tomorrow on my one o'clock show with a lady named uh, Candace Horbaz. And uh, she is a lady who I discovered through the podcasting world. She was described in a review as the next Joe Rogan. So I got interested and I looked at her profile and I, decided, uh, she's doing a cooking show. She's, um, she has a BA in psychology, but uh, so she's interested in psychology, but she's also very interested in socio-political discussions and things like that. And so I looked at the, the list of guests she's had, and very guests, and I was like, wow, this is an interesting person. So I invited her on the program. After I invited her on the program and she uh, agreed to come on the program, I started to do some research on her and found out that um, she, her main job, her main gig, is as an adult film star. And not just an adult film star, but one of the top adult film stars in the world. And, of course, she doesn't go by her real name in that. So I just, that, you know, that is a whole other layer of interesting and uh, how somebody it, <laughs> that, with that uh Vocation, <laughs> vocation can be a politically conservative and religiously conservative person who's uh, got some real strong viewpoints on the right side of, of uh, the discussion so it, it's just a fascinating multi-dimensional person so that will be tomorrow at 1pm hope I've teased that sufficiently that you'll tune in and so uh, j- please join me then uh, check out Bruce's website in the meantime and all the links are in the description hope you had an uh, enjoy- enjoyable broadcast as I did. I hope you'll join me tomorrow at 1 p.m. Until then, I'm at Apple for Mind Dog TV Podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great night and bye for now. To me, listen How to me, listen to me,
1: can listen to me, listen to me, to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.